0: You're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. Oh, we're going to actually begin on uh, like with uh, verse 12, but I want to go ahead. I want to just for the sake of catching us up. Without comments, I'm going to just begin with verse one and read to there, and then we'll stop and proceed. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this that the trying of your faith works patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire. Wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. But the rich, in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away; for the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withers the grass, and the flower thereof falls, and the grace of the fashion of it perishes. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. All right. So there's there's what we've covered so far, and we we then begin with verse twelve. Blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to him that loves him. So blessed is the man that endures temptation. We, we, it is the same word we hear in the Beatitudes, which says uh, basically the answer to that is that that man is happy. Happy is the man who endures temptation. And for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. The, in, the endures temptation is, is the, the same as in James 1, 2, not falling into divers temptations or trials. It's, it's talking about back there, it's a matter of joy. But to endure those temptations brings blessing. Joy in the moment, blessing as a result. Because it says, when he has tried, when he's become tested, or when, he's, when he has approved, when he has passed through the trying, his faith has gained the victory. This is why it's so important for all of us. And, and I, I'm having this conversation in my head all the time. Where have our testimonies gone? Because, you know, there have been times in the past where we didn't get to the went to the Sunday night message because the testimonies were so long. And for some reason, somewhere over the last few years, the testimonies have disappeared. And the testimonies, are, are there are many reasons for them. But, the, but one of the most significant is that we get to tell of a former day, a former story, a way that it was or a person that I used to be. But by the hand of God and the power of God, this is now who I am. This is now what's going on. And we share those not only just for the exaltation of God, but as encouragement to others who are facing those same things. But the testimonies are rare anymore. And I'm asking myself, asking God, where, where have the testimonies gone? Because when we have passed through that trying, when we have passed through that situation, then now we can tell these stories on the side of victory. We're, we're looking back saying, I am no longer because he has made me. I was, but now I am broken, but now whole. And so we were just absent of those stories. And, you know, as Jay did on Sunday morning, stopped to give that opportunity because he said, I knew I could, uh, by by what God was showing me, that there were testimonies that were supposed to be shared in that moment and and weren't. So again, I'm, I'm asking the Holy Spirit to make that clear so that that, that day of those moments of encouragement can actually, can actually come very freely and very openly. The crown that's mentioned in this verse is the Stephanos crown, the one that was the laurel wreath that was given in competition, the one that we will lay at, at Jesus' feet someday, recognizing that the crown that we received is actually what he did through us, not what we accomplished by ourselves. He's the one deserving of the crown. The crown of life, This is of that the phrase of life is the highest, and speaking of eternal life. And then to them that love him, uh, we, we've already read that love produces patience and, and victorious endurance. Love that flows from testing is fully certified and secured. I love that phrase. Love that flows from testing and the trials is fully certified. You're going to find that that love has a has a depth to it. It has a strength in it because if I tell you I love you, and based on what you're going through, and I've already endured what you're going through, that love, that compassion, has a has a depth to it that otherwise the words might not have. As I shared with you when I was going through that depression, the people who could really help me, the people who could I, who could really Make a difference with those ones who could actually describe the depression in terms that I knew that they knew. I knew they had walked where I was walking, and to see them with lives normal. Rip Lasseter was one of those that was just the most helpful because, again, I think I've told you I didn't. I was in another room. I just wasn't in a position to see anybody. And uh, but he, I could overhear him telling Jan the story about about Julia leaving one morning for Tennessee and this anxiety and panic and depression hit him and all he could do was get back in bed. And uh, to hear him talk in very specific terms about what his emotions were, what was happening, this huge cycle of things he was going through and to look at him and here he is successful and working and in Austin back and forth and leading and doing all the kind of things he did. And to realize that he had this story after the same stuff I was going through gave great hope That, that my, because the feeling in the moment is that it's permanent. But somebody who can speak from a place of understanding where that love has been tried, that love comes across somewhat differently because you look in someone's eyes and when when they say, I I understand, it matters to me, I love you, then you know that you can tell it because it's coming out of of a place that's been tested and tried. Verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempted he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. We have to know with an absolute certainty that this word tempted is not the same word tempted in the previous verses. If we don't understand that, if we don't recognize we're talking about different Greek words, the the previous words for tempted, the one that means to try, the, the trying of something is, I will never say this right, but it's diakonos. And so that's, that has been used up to this point, even in the verses right before it. Now, when, now what, what James is telling us, he says, let no man say when he is tempted. This temptation is a temptation that comes from sin. The other trying can originate in God. This dangling sin in front of you to see if you'll go there will never be God. So it's a different tempted. And if we don't understand that, again, we're going to be somewhat confused because it says, I'm I'm tempted of God. We said, let no man say that. Well, we've just got through discussing being tempted and the the victory through that temptation. So this is truly a profound two-verse, section of two verses that can confuse us. Again, if we don't understand what's passed before it. James has been, with remarkable evidence and with remarkable testimony, uh, he has witnessed the working and the functioning reality of the Holy Spirit. So just, we have to kind of keep this in context, that James is writing early after the crucifixion, but he's also writing early after Pentecost. He has watched, I'm sure he heard the stories of, of Peter and John in the, in the days after Pentecost going into the temple where there's someone begging for money and that this guy after, after Peter says, you know, gold and silver have enough, number, that which I have, I give you freely, rise up and walk. And the guy gets up, he feels strength in his legs and he gets up and he goes into the temple praising God. I'm sure James has heard that if James wasn't present in some of these moments. He's witnessed this supernatural reality of God. So, we, so he has a background of the functioning of the Holy Spirit that we have to acknowledge. He's not writing he's not from a place of a lack. He's writing from the abundance of what he's already seen. So it's also, again, it's also important to, to know again that these, the word tempted is not the same word used earlier for the trying of faith. This tempted is a solicitation to evil. That's the best definition I could find of that word that this tempted is a solicitation to evil and affliction because it's it's not only I'm tempted by it but the tempting of it leads to destruction. it has it has a heaviness in it and that's that is the tempted that is used in this verse and God will again not dangle sin in front of us, to measure our resolve, I hear that a lot. I can assure you that I don't even know many earthly fathers or mothers that would do that. And I'm sure there are some. There's enough weirdness around that I'm sure there are some. But I don't know many dads in former days who would leave a magazine out to see if their son picked it up or something on the computer to see if, this, if, if a child would watch it. I mean, we're talking about an unreasonable perspective of parenting. If that, if, if that's, and, and God certainly is our Father not going to dangle sin in front of us just to see if we have the resolve to leave it alone. That would make God tempting us with evil. Again, that's what it says. Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God for God cannot tempt with evil. I mean, that does that make sense? When we switch words, the phrase makes a lot of sense that, that God will not tempt us with evil. We are indwelt by a spirit. That is our provision. That's our strength and that's our authority. So when we get to that, That neither be tempted by any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So God's saying, if I were to dangle sin in front of you, I'm not testing your resolve, I'm testing mine. I'm your indwelling provision. I am your strength. I am your clarity. I am your focus. I am all that. So if I test your humanity, what am I going to find? You're human. But I have put you in a position by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit I don't need to know whether, whether your humanity is strong or not. I've already concluded that it's not. So I put my strength in you so if I tempt you, if God says, I am not going to tempt myself. Yeah, why would I work against myself? I am, you know, what I want to do is I want to prove me to you. Now, that, we can do that in the trying, in the former word, temptation. I can, in trial, you can find me affirming. You can find me strong. You can find me good. You can find me loving. But I'm not going to dangle sin in front of you because that would be, not, that, that's not tempting you. That's tempting me. Again, what's the point? The trying mentioned earlier is, again, by design to make you better and more full of him. That's the former word, the trying. It's every, every purpose of that trying is strength. Every purpose of that is clarity. It's understanding. It's growth. It's maturity. The phrase of God is referring specifically to this understanding with a specific statement that this tempting was not come as an agent proceeding from God. This, this tempting is not the agent of it the one doing it is not God. In verse 15, again, we see this clarity because the cause of sin is ourselves and our susceptibility to be drawn away by that sin as if it were bait because that's what, that's when he says, but every man is tempted, it means that that sin by its very nature will be dangled, not by God, but it will because of our nature, our humanity, it will be dangled in front of us as bait. Uh... And it says we will only be drawn away to, to that bait by our own lust. He's saying that, that this will not be the working of God. This is James' clarity. Because when we start looking in just a second about he's fixing to change this story. He's fixing to turn this around and say this is what evil does. This, you know, evil will test us. And, uh, and entice us, but the rei- and, and will eventually, as it says, will lead to death. But almost immediately here in the next verse he starts drawing this, this contrast. One more verse, though, in verse 15 says, "Then when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin when it is finished, brings forth death. So when we've taken the bait, brings forth sin." Sin, when it's done its work, brings forth death. Death, even for the believer, is not eternal, but it it will create separation. What What sin did from the beginning. Sin's not particularly creative. It's not particularly clever. It doesn't disguise itself well. What did it do in the beginning? It separated God and man. Now, what Jesus did in the, in, in the destruction of that sin allowed, allowed the Holy Spirit in us to, to close that gap. I don't have to live separated from the Father anymore. Now, not as the day will come when he returns, but I now have, because sin has been dealt with, it allows that separation to be removed. I can talk to him. I can openly understand him. He can come and dwell in me. And I can be in him. He he and me and me and him, as Jesus said in John chapter 14. Verse 16 says, do not err, my beloved brethren, which simply means uh, that, that phrase do not err is attributing to God temptation to evil. As he proceeds to show every good, all that is good on earth comes from God. So he shifts here. Don't err. Do not assign evil to God. He's not going to tempt you with it. He's not going to try to dangle at its bait. Recognize that that enticement is not coming from God. Don't err. In verse 17 is where it shifts. Every good, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom it is no variableness, neither shadow of turning so now james makes this almost poetic turn talking about this evil talking about this enticement and to not err don't don't believe for a second that that is god because he's saying this is what i want you to know about god this is what i want you to understand about about god and it and so get rid of that no error it's important to note and this is this is these are the strange problems that English creates, uh, because we read these passages and don't sometimes pick up the nuances in our study uh, that, that we should. Every good gift and every perfect gift, we don't recognize that the word gift in that is two separate words. In English, it's just gift and gift. In Greek, they are they are two separate words. So what he's actually saying is that the first gift, that first word, that good gift, is the act of giving or the gift that's given in its initial stage. The second word gift is the thing given or the gift when it's perfected. So love given, that is an example of the first, Word, love given, is the act of giving. So someone giving love, God giving us love, or the gift in its initial stage. So we know that God loves us. It was given to us as a gift. But what do we also know from the scripture that this looks like when it's perfected? What's the scripture say? What does perfect love do? It casts out fear. See, that's, it. that's love doing its purpose. So love in its initial stage is something that we know that we have. But when it's perfected, it begins to function. It, begins, it really can begin to cast out fear because that was the promise made. So this is what James is talking about. That when we receive grace as a gift of God, it, it, it has an initial work that it does in us but when 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 grace really becomes grace, when grace is perfected, what's going to happen it's going to find a way through us to somebody else because now the grace that I received that gave me relief when it's perfected will begin to flow through me and do the same thing with others it will be it will be perfected it will be able to be used for the purpose intended so when 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 James is describing every good gift, every initial gift, and then every perfect gift. When it finds its accomplishment, when it finds its true purpose, it comes down from the father of lights. Now we have to, again, just simple key things to understand is that this word lights is not a light that would come from a candle. It's not a light that would come from anything other than something celestial, it's coming from a star. It's coming from a sun. It's the reflection of the moon. So it's it's speaking of that light. It's coming down from the Father of... Because what's the uniqueness of those lights compared to the light of a candle? He created it. He created it they but... Don't go out. Do what? They, don't go out. they can't go out. They have an eternal characteristic. They have an eternal quality to them that that they that they won't change. So every good, every perfect gift, initial, complete, that's that's found its work comes down from the Father of lights. There's just so many things in that that you, you can just pause and hang there a minute because it helps us recognize that every gift that he gives us is designed to have its perfect function. That... Every gift extends, every every gift that I receive, as great as it is, has a purpose in it to be something more than just what it can be to me. It's the concept and the thought that we've talked about several times that the blessings he gives me were designed to flow through me to bless somebody else. That's the blessing finding its perfect work. That's why, again, testimonies need to be shared because testimonies, the the blessings that we receive in a testimony, what's one way that 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 blessing of ours begins to be extended? We tell it and we live it. We don't just share it from our mouth. We share it from the the very lives. So the author of it is the Father of lights, with whom there is no variables, neither shadow of turning, See, that's not hard to comprehend when you understand we're talking about celestial light. Because if the earth weren't turning, that side that faces the sun would never know anything but sun. But what does the turning do? Yeah, it cre- it creates yeah it, it creates that sharing, but it also creates that very natural eclipse. We get on the backside of it, and he's saying, with this Father of Lights, that doesn't exist. There there is no shadow of turning. There is no point to where something's going to line up and block it. There's not going to be an eclipse. There's not going to be a lunar eclipse. There's not going to be a day when the sunlight's affected because something passes in front of it because, because it's revolving. I know that won't happen with him. So it's much easier to comprehend when he says there is no variableness. It's that, this, this, that light is, is, is always going to come and there's neither shadow of turning in it. There is no, there is no eclipse Uh, I thought it kind of interesting as I was looking at this, the shadow of turning refers to what was called a shadow mark. The darkness that was caused by a shadow mark, an eclipse. That's basically what it was talking about. Verse 18, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Well, one of the first things that should hit us in that phrase it says, of his own will. We've been studying this on Sunday morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that he was the one who let that light shine out of darkness. It was his choice. It was his prerogative. It was his action. It was his will by which this occurred. Of his own will beget he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The believer's Regeneration is the highest example of nothing but good proceeding from God. You and I today sitting here are alive not only initially by our birth, we are alive eternally because of our rebirth. Every bit of that flowed from him. We, we try to interject ourselves in it at times. We try to almost probably fully unintentionally elevate our part in that because there was true choice. It really was an option. But if we step back and realize what God did to bring us that option, what God did to bring us this gift that we could actually receive, then we recognize that that this regeneration in which I I now get to live. Because it it, it is amazing that we live lives now and we will never die. That that is is who we are. And that ought to bring us some level of just amazement, assurance, just joy at the fact that I know that my body will, unless he comes before that day, my body will, but that's even only temporary because the, the death is death has been defeated. Regen- life that this regenerated life is is it's even beyond the fact that that not only did Jesus come as the gift to bring me salvation, but because He was resurrected, because death could not hold Him, then He could by His life bring life to me. I now live a regenerate, resurrected life because of what he did. And again, of his own will, of his own good pleasure, which shows that God's essential nature to do good and not evil, as we saw back there. It won't won't be God that does that. It's not induced by some external cause that this says within himself. This is what he chose to do. He begat us spiritually a once-for-all accomplished act, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. In contrast, as I said earlier, to lust, when it is conceived, brings forth sin and sin death. He's saying life follows naturally in connection with light. So he's, he's saying that happened here, led to death. This light leads to life. Verse 19. No, sorry, a kind of first fruit. Let me mention that quickly. So Christ is, in the respect to the resurrection, He is absolutely the evidence of first fruit. We get to see that in First Corinthians chapter fifteen. But in terms of in re, of regeneration, then it says we become a kind of first fruits uh, in terms of regeneration. We we are the the first regenerated creatures. we're the first to have life even though we would we recognize that we will eventually die Jesus wouldn't he was, he was completely resurrected the first fruits of resurrection but we will we, we receive the, the first fruits of regeneration and and with it we get the ultimate pledge, of regeneration of of all of creation, according to Romans chapter eight, and we and what we read there. So we are the first fruits. You and I today. We are the first fruits. And again, what's the point? Why even mention first fruit? Well, it was in the Old Testament. It was ultimately. Uh, Important in, in all Old Testament things because they had that first glean, they had that first go out and gathering of the first fruits and that's what was offered to God. We, have, we, we understand, I hope we do, that we are giving God that which we have been given. We are that offering of first fruits. We're recognizing that we have a regenerate life and that what should be what should happen now that we are living a life that's eternal we're living a life that's been given to us by him that we could not have accomplished on our own our life would have ended in death and that would and, and we know that where that story goes but we are the we have received a gift of regenerate life we have been regenerated if we are a kind of first fruits what does what does it tell us we should immediately do with that gift we give it back to God. It, it, this is not ours. This is not my life anymore. How do I know that? What's the scripture? We've been bought. Been bought with a price. We are, no, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. So that allows me to understand this is why I, I simply offer back to him this Evidence of first fruit. Verse 19, wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, we got to get that down just very quickly. So he's saying, wherefore, as your evil is of yourself, which was the conclusion of the earlier passage, it's not of God, but your good from God. That's the wherefore. He's covered that just right before this. Wherefore, as your evil is of yourself, but your good is from God. However, the oldest manuscripts and versions of this read this. It says, you know it. We find this in other places in the scripture. He's saying, you, not, not just wherefore, you know it, my beloved brethren. You know that, that every good gift comes from God. You know that the evil is your own. But consequently, let every man then be swift to hear. That is, actively receiving the word of truth. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Think that would be helpful in life? Now, we have to realize he's built to this. He's building the story. So this this follows immediately what he says before. That's why he puts that wherefore in there, my beloved brethren. Because every good gift is from God and because the evil is yours, why why would it then make me swift to hear? Because I need to know the difference. I need to understand that which is of God. I need to be able, I need that discernment. I need to know that that which is good is from God and that it's not him that's dangling the sin in front of us. So let every man be swift to hear, to receive it. Slow to speak because you open your mouth and you open it in ignorance, what are you going to do? You're likely going to prove what others have already suspected. You 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 don't know what you're talking about. Slow to to speak, slow to wrath, because he's not going to be the origin of wrath. I'm not saying he's not going to be the origin of anger. Origin of wrath is is a very different word. Slow in becoming... Slow to wrath means slow in becoming heated in debate. This is speaking specifically of some of the things that James was was dealing with because there was such a hastiness of temper hindering the hearing of God's Word. I mean, there was just such instant anger in any type of debate. There were no conversations. There was just anger. Verse 20, man's... uh, Verse 20, let me read verse twenty again. For the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. So man's angry zeal in debating this, this is really amazing to me. And I and I will be careful in what I say here because I I, just, I don't I, I don't want uh, I don't want I don't want to misrepresent and I don't want to blow something out of proportion. But there are certain groups of people, and I could mention one in particular, but there are certain groups of people that have become so dogmatic in the narrowness of their believing that they love the argument. And they and they love it because they are so prepared for it. And people they can back people down so fast. Because they they when you get a, When you get real narrow in your teaching, you don't need many verses to substantiate it. And most people don't have a breadth of of understanding that they can even talk back. So there's a real dominance in these conversations. And if somebody tries to say something back, it gets heated real fast because they're going to immediately accuse you, accuse me of heresy. In my office because the topic that's like I was I'd bring up scripture and they would just they would just dismiss it just dismiss it wouldn't listen they just dismissed it and I had to find myself on this side of the desk just constantly calming myself down just like nope no nope no, don't go there they're not listening they're not going to listen just don't go there it's amazing how they how they love this moment of debate, and this is specifically what J- what James is talking about, because there's a, there was a reality then. There's a, re- a reality now that you get in a debate for, with someone that uh, very difficult for the honor of God and His righteousness to be seen. Uh, it's far from working that which is really righteous in God's sight when those uh, when those that great debating in this the argument start. Uh, John three eighteen says, righteousness is sown in peace, not in wrath. Verse 21, and I'll end there. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity. That's, that's just not a word you can just roll off your tongue easily. Somebody want to try it? Superfluity, is that it? It's, it's, it's like the accent ought to go somewhere else, but of naughtiness And receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. So we start with the words lay apart once for all. That's what that means. Once and for all in Greek, as you would take off a filthy garment, that that filthiness is cleansed away by the hearing of the word. And don't put the dirty garment back on. It's amazing, and and I think all of us live in this amazement, how not viewing others, viewing myself, how I can hear truth that absolutely I can understand and accept, and I find myself later putting back on the dirty garment, picking up the struggle again and putting, putting it back on. And, and James is encouraging, once and for all, set apart that, that f- filthiness. Uh, what does that word mean? One word. Superfluous. It means excess. Excess. Mm-hmm. It, that, the, the phrase means excess, which drives toward malice. So it's not just the, that of, of naughtiness we have, a, we have a picture of naughtiness. It's that, that whole phrase means don't, you know, wherefore lay apart all filthiness and all excess that leads to malice. Leads to aggression. Yes, sir. Well, and, and the thought of why in the world, once it's out, would we dump that stuff back in? And you know, because that that that's the picture. It's not it's not simply the removing. It's like once and for all, it's removed. Why would I take that which has been skimmed off, that that was contaminating, and pour it right back into the mix? Just yeah. Yeah, it's, it's when you when you get the true image of this, it's like you can understand James's urgency and it's like because there's not many situations where when, when you take something off as a garment that that's that's really dirty. I, I was up here working this morning at seven digging fence posts and man, I was sweating. And then and then at ten, uh ten thirty, I went back out there and I poured the rest of that cement around those fence posts. And when I got through that, I was really sweating. And I st- still had to go to lunch in, uh, in Loveland. so it's like, I can't go like this. And even in the simplest way, I had no desire. I, even now, I, it would just be, ugh, to go back and put those sweaty clothes back on. Like, we don't naturally go back in that, in that direction. And, and James is saying, uh, lay apart. That stuff, just don't go back to it. And receive with meekness, in mildness toward one another, in meekness. Uh, re- receive with meekness the engrafted word. Now again, we need we need history here. We need perspective here, because I, we I find myself constantly in these verses reminding myself who James is and what James knew. Because so much of the understanding, there, there have been debates, huge debates, about whether James actually belonged in the, in, the, in the Bible or not. Because of these words, you know, be doers of the word, not hearers only. It's like, no, they're, he's taken us away from the salvation that we know. He's adding something in there that we just totally disagree with. If you understand... James's perspective of the Holy Spirit, you won't get confused in those phrases. Because he's not, he's not talking about our work. We have to get, we have to get in, in James's perspective. You know, we've we've heard for years that there's three, there's there's three rules to Bible interpretation. And you have to apply all three of them. The first of those, if y'all remember, what is it? It's context. What's the second of those rules? It's Context, and the third, unlike the others, is context. We have to understand a bit about James, because he's not when he says, when he says, uh, and receive with meekness the engrafted word. If I'm not understanding. I could really misunderstand what he meant by the engrafted word. Because how do I get that engrafted word? Who, you know, how does it become engrafted? Holy Spirit. But I could misunderstand and believe that that's by study. I could believe that that engrafted word is knowledge that I obtain and I get smarter and smarter and more qualified by the education and the pedigree that I carry, but I don't have the Spirit of God. Yeah, we don't have the revelation that that makes us distinct as as the body of Christ, receiving the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. So engrafted word, it's the gospel word, whose whose proper attribute is to be engrafted by the Holy Spirit so as to be fully incorporated into the believer. Because engrafted says what about this, about the word? If I'm going to graft something, what's my expectation? Yeah, that it will take on life and bear the fruit of of of, of what it was intended. We know that we're grafted in. And whose fruit are we producing? His. Yeah, you know, the fact that he engrafted a word in me is that that truth that I've received will now begin to produce fruit. And again, we need to understand this because there's not only assurance given in this, there's promise given in this that if when we speak truth that we've received of God... What will it do? It will do what it says, which is able to save your souls. What's what's also capable then, if I speak the truth that he gives me to others, what should my expectation be? That that truth, in its initial form, as the gift that I've been given, will release some things in me. But what happens when truth finds its perfect work? What happens when truth is perfected? This second gift that we're talking about, this perfect gift, what will truth do? It will begin to have the same effect on others that it had in me, even to the salvation of their souls. If it had the power to bring, by that truth that I received, had the power to bring me to an understanding of salvation, Now then, me speaking those words that God gives me to speak can bring somebody else to that same salvation. It's not my words, it's his. It's not my power, it's his. It's not my authority, it's his. It's all in his glory. It's all in his name, as we read very often. But we are the vessel by which he delivers. We are that clay pot by which he delivers the excellency. We're the vessel by which the light shines through. And, and, and James has just does such a wonderful job of helping us understand that that the, the, the law came to man only from without, but he's describing now what he's readily seen in, in uh, that, that external word could admonish somebody to duty, but the gospel, the real good news, is engrafted in us inwardly And so fulfills the ultimate design of the law, that which the law could not do. But when Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy it, I came to fulfill it. So now the law can find its perfect work because now the law is not written down. Now the law is a person who can now live in me. And it it now can do something as a perfect gift that the initial gift couldn't do the initial gift could show me where I was wrong. The perfect gift of the law sets us free. Because it wasn't that perfect law of the person will never encumber us. It's designed to set us free. Able to save souls. Your true selves from the body uh, is now liable in sickness and death, but the soul being now saved uh, can absolutely be free. And you know, it's terribly hard to get people to believe that. That they can actually live, walk, exist in freedom today. I, it would probably make a great book. I don't have time to write it, but it'd probably make a great book. All the things that, that we can hear on a regular basis of, in believers, some believers who've been believers for a long time, that they're holding in their heads they're holding in their hearts that won't allow them to walk in freedom i think it would it it might also it might turn into uh, it it might turn into laughter the best medicine because we would have to in some way is if i'm reading about somebody that's standing at this threshold of of freedom and on the other side, they've been given every promise of assurance of goodness and the freedom that's over there. And, they, and, they, and they're saying, you know, well, I, I don't, I don't want to go through that door because I'm not sure what life is going to be like when I step into the fullness of who God is. Now, that's a serious statement, but it's also on the verge of laughable. Most of the time, people don't want to take that step because they keep asking the "what" question. I don't know what it's going to be like living without this brokenness, living without this sadness, living without this situation that I've been dealing with for so long that I know myself by the terms of that of that brokenness. So I don't know how. I don't even how to. I've got one of these going on right now in a, in a person's life. I don't know what it's going to be like. I've never known myself in the, in, in what you're describing. And my answer has to be the same every time. But do you know the who's on the other side? Because I can't can't tell you the what. I don't know what it's going to be like. But isn't the who that's over there worth going to get, going to discover? Because isn't that who the one you can trust? Isn't that who that, that we know is our comforter, knows our strength, knows is our authority, knows is our love, loves us so much? that he let his son die f- for us, that we might be saved and have the opportunity to even stand at this door. But being that person who's on that other side, <coughs> stepping that way, being this way, that's all you know. I know. So, I mean, it's permanent it's because you don't trust that person. I mean, you don't. And it's hard. You... And see, I, and, and, and that's, that's exactly what I hear a lot of. It's like... Yeah, we don't know any different. But when we discover different, it's totally different. I've been there, so yeah, it. yeah. But it—it's one of the most stranger moments. I've—I've I've actually had people come to the point of complete understanding, know their false identity, know what the Holy Spirit's done, know what the offer is of freedom, and stop right there. It's like I can't—I can't go there. I—I've I, had a—I've had a man. It's been a few years ago, come and and tell me I know that there's stuff that I need to deal with from my childhood. I just can't do it. I just can't. I can't face it. Okay, but what? Are, are, Are you saved, first of all? Have you experienced this transforming power of God to move you from this to this? You were lost, and now you're saved. You were a sinner, now you're a saint. Are those things... Real to you? Yes. So you don't think he can cope with what you what what's broken in your story, so that you can be whole? Can't deal with it. He wouldn't. He wouldn't even come make the first visit. He wouldn't come sit down the first time. I don't think I. I, I know we're not shocked by it because we see, we see the responses to God in so many ways and. But, uh, and I'm like, I'm, I'm like you, Jamie, I'm, I've been on that other side. You know, so much of what I teach and preach about religion, it's like I have to just, uh, you know, I have to recognize I'm, I'm preaching about me. I'm preaching about where I live for, for the majority of my life. I'm grateful for the freedom that I, that I can walk in today, but for so many years, I was preaching and teaching that which I had to get past to get to get here as well. Yeah. A lot of right don't trust God. Yeah, you're right. We make that statement around here pretty often. We confess the love of God that we do not trust. Yeah. And one, you know. And you're you're right, Jesse. And that comes from a lot of places. The not. The, Mm-hmm. You know, they don't it. Well, because we have told the world for a long time that this is an angry God. This is a vengeful God. That you don't get out of line with this God because he's got power to get you. And we have portrayed that God. Uh, not, I don't hear it quite as much anymore. I don't travel in that circle to hear it. But, man, there was a lot of power in making feel maybe making people feel afraid, you know, and making them feel guilty, because you can really move them, move them emotionally if you can hit them, hit them with, with that, that kind of, those kind of words. But when you, uh, years ago, there was a pastor, uh, his name was Brother Bass. He was the pastor at uh, Friendship Baptist Church near La Mesa, where Jan's mom and where Jan went. So we were there on a Sunday morning years and years ago, and he said a phrase that when I was sharing at their 80th uh, anniversary just a few months ago, I, I told him, I said, I was standing, Brother Bass was standing here when he, when he made this statement. I said, that's how profound it was. Doesn't seem so much now, but it was then. He said, if the love of God won't compel him to come, There's nothing else that will compel them. That's a simple statement. But every other effort, every other push, every other means or motive of guilt or fear or anything else will not ever compel them. The love of God has to do it. And man, it stuck with me. It was such a simple but profound statement because if they don't know the person on the other side of that door loves them, if they don't understand that compelling love, they will likely not go through that door. But we've told them for a long time. I I, I shared with you, and it was, it was heartbreaking for me. I understand it, but it's heartbreaking. We were in Portland, Oregon many years ago, and uh, it was gay marriage was, There was so much conversation about it. But in in Portland, there was this very brief opening where, where it was legalized. So you can imagine the scene at the courthouse on that Saturday morning. I mean, they were lined up around the building waiting to get in to be married. And Jan and I had taken Jay's pickup down to a shop that was just a block, maybe two blocks away from the Multnomah County Courthouse And uh, we could hear this going on. And so we walked over. Didn't really know what was going on, but we walked over close enough to where we could see. And these people were quietly in line waiting. And the, the church groups had lined up in the parking places around the courthouse with their tables, not offering drinks, not offering truth, blaring at them, shouting at them, demeaning them, accusing them. And it was one of the most, uh, I don't know, it was surreal to stand there and watch the hate because it was real hate it wasn't even masked they weren't trying there was no love in it it was condemnation it was harsh it was hurtful and you and you and you like i don't want that to be what somebody would think of me i i'm not sure that i could, if jesus is going to say to this woman who was caught in adultery You know, woman, where your accusers didn't ask her nor yell or scream and say you ought to be ashamed of yourself, but whose life was changed by a very compelling grace and a very compelling love? Yes, sir. There's a, well, it it, it may be, Jesse, there's a lot of things to call it, but the church standing around the people that were lined up at the courthouse. Yeah. How how they portrayed these cells, it's almost as if they put these cells where God should be standing. Yeah. With 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 yeah, they just didn't bother to let the they just didn't bother to ask the Holy Spirit to speak through them. Yeah. It, it was it was it was much more by far more political than it was spiritual led by a whole different whole different things James cuts pretty quick beautifully done I love the poetry in james james there's a as straightforward as he is there's a bit of a romantic in the in the in the way that the Holy Spirit told that delivered that message through him you know to to me it's just uh quite exquisitely done. Father, thank you tonight for bringing us to this passage and just the the reminder that these good and perfect gifts, the initial one that finds its perfection in the release of it to others, that it actually does by its design what it was intended to do. Thank you, Father, that you teach us these things so that our lives become the evidence of you Your Holy Spirit, Father, given to us, that initial gift that that we received that did so much in us brought us to salvation, brought us truth, and brought us revelation, and brought us strength, that that Holy Spirit gift, you, through us, finds a perfect work, and when that which you gave us begins to become apparent to others, both in our life and in our testimony that we share, the former us, that others can see the true power and restoration that was only possible because of you. So thank you, Father. You've shown us a lot tonight. You brought us a ways. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.